Welcome to another episode of Adventures in the Creative Industries. On the sofa with me today is Jan Sesnek. Jan is an inspiration of mine. He won a Scottish BAFTA, he toured the world with Matthew Herbert, and it was on Dragon's Den. He tells us his story from when he was a Segway tour guide in a quaint little town in America, to when he opened his video game and interactive studio here in Edinburgh, Lucky Frame. We discuss his side projects and his relationship with his musician brother. We also touch on his next art piece, a self-destructive sound machine. I hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as I enjoyed making it. It was a blast. Are you ready? I am totally ready. Perfect. Um, sign me up. I remember working the first time with Jan when he was at Lucky Frame, which was his video game company. Would you would you say that that? Yeah. We kind of yeah. Creative studio video games interactive studio yeah. company. Yeah. That's on it, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So an interactive studio <laughs> and I was hired at the time to make a trailer for a new game which was Wave Trip for iOS. I remember it was uh, 2013, give or take, I think, wow. was it not? It sounds right, but it's a long time ago. Yeah. So yes, Jan today will join us. I am so excited about this. I am probably still going to suck a little bit. You're doing great. Yes. All you can ask for is iteration. Yes, you know, exactly. Like Just getting that little bit better yeah. Yeah, every time. Jan. Yeah. How you doing, man? I'm good, yeah. it's uh, it's It's been a wild... I don't know how how far back should we go? Like oh, you, you said, you wanted my story, right? I like, like I, what I like to ask people is their origin story. Oh boy, okay. Um, it's hard. It's it's funny because it's hard. It's quite hard to pinpoint an origin. I guess a career origin. It's easy to pinpoint a sort of human origin. I, That's the thing. Like whenever know. I say I ask for the origin story, people don't know exactly what I mean. So yeah. I get different answers all exactly. the time. Exactly. That's a good. That's a, it's a it's a good open ended question. Yeah. I, it's funny. I, I definitely tend to map my origin as a sort of like grown-up creative professional human being as uh moving here moving to scotland um the land of immigrants immigrants. (laughs) Um, yeah it's uh which was i guess 12 years ago uh which is a long time long time Um, but i think before then i had i had gone to college and i'd always done kind of creative projects but it hadn't occurred to me to do them I hadn't really seen a method for making them fully part of my lifestyle. I think I saw, like, I kind of played with the idea of being a teacher or finding a job somewhere. or (laughs) Just, like, giving up, like, even before starting. But at the time, I hadn't considered it as giving up. I think I hadn't, it hadn't, I hadn't seen what kind of possibilities there were, I think. And I think I discovered this, uh, the master's, degree in sound design here at the University of Edinburgh kind of by accident and it fell at a really good time I had been um, the job I had had was was giving uh, historic guy uh, historic tours of the town that my family lives in in the US on segways Uh, (laughs) uh, well and the important part is saying the name of this the company as well which was segs in the city and <laughs> I had to wear yes. a little embroidered T-shirt that had like this a sort of like Sex and the City logo hacked into a Segway, uh, and with the same text and everything. Um, and so I was riding these Segways, teaching people how to ride Segways, and then giving tours of historic 
downtown Annapolis, Maryland. Um, so you are one of those guys that were zipping on a Segway. Yeah, I was, we were an early, we were very early wow. on the scene of this. We were probably, it was only, the, they, these things had only been around as sort of tours for a year or two. And so I did it. So tell me, were you wearing like elbow pads, knee pads, and and We had to wear helmet bike helmets. Well. Yeah, we had to wear helmets, but Beautiful. no, we didn't need to wear any other pads. Um, I mean, it was also funny. There was definitely a direct core. I mean, I, had, I have loads of stories from that time, but there was definitely a direct correlation between like people who were overly confident and people who fell off. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Like, and were there any in-betweeners who were just like kind of face down? Or? It was the people who were kind of like just had a sort of healthy awareness of that something might go wrong were totally fine. But the people were like, well, I've read about this. You can't fall off. And they step on and they immediately would fall oh. off. And uh, so there were a few hairy moments. But it was a, anyway, I, there was, there was a, um, there was a moment I remember where I was, I was and nearing the end of the summer and, and um, I wasn't sure what I was going to be doing and the uh, the owners of this company had had been kind of going around looking for ways to expand they'd been driving around the east coast kind of looking for new new opportunities for uh, to expand their Segway tour guide company and uh, one day they came back to me and they said yeah well we've just been we're just come back from Gettysburg Pennsylvania Gettysburg is very famous in the U.S. as a very pretty small town, very small kind of college town where there was a huge civil war battle 150 years ago. Right, and, yes. Um, now, of course, there's a huge park, uh, a memorial park at the battlefield and a quaint little town. I think and I know of it because it was an episode of uh, House of Cards where he goes to... That's right, Gettysburg. he goes yeah. to Gettysburg. Yes, absolutely, go. yes. So you see, it, you can learn from TV shows as well. <laughs> yeah, well, it features quite heavily in American culture, so now that you've seen it and remembered it, I'm sure it'll come back, but it's uh, an interesting place. But they had found an old ice cream parlor in downtown Gettysburg, and they were thinking of converting it into a Segway tour guide hub and ice cream shop. Which the two things goes in beautifully. You know, you go on your hot uh, Civil War battlefield Segway oh, tour segue, and then an ice come cream. back. Yeah, you pay very respectful to the uh, you know hundred thousand people who, uh, who who were killed and injured on the day, but and then have some ice cream. Uh, and they said, "Well, Jan, we think you've done really well this summer, and we we think you should go and be the manager of this shop." And I think there was this moment where I just I saw a life stretching out ahead of me that I didn't want to lead <laughs> <laughs> was it like one of those moments that you just saw it I saw like, the future no no yeah absolutely it was it was a future that I saw very clearly and it was not a future that I wanted and I went home and I started googling things that interested me and different kind of types of degrees I could get and one of the first things was this I'd been looking more and more into sound design uh and I found the degree here. And a long story short, I moved to Edinburgh to do the degree, and I stayed um, afterwards. So that was kind of, I think, my origin. That's, that's maybe my origin story is segues and you know, ice cream I like, or lack I like this origin stories because I always learn something I never knew of people. Because, <laughs> like, I had no idea. <laughs> that I was a segway tour guide. Segway tour guide. Oh, I keep it close to my chest. That's yeah, amazing. That's <laughs> extra skill I can it's always rely a, on. It's not the first thing you say when you meet people. No. Oh, right, I used to be a segway tour guide. Yeah, I've learned to embrace my embarrassing past. I think uh, it's a good one. I think you always learn. You leave, you learn. Yeah, absolutely. I think I guess you can you could race on those things now if you could have. Well, you sort of can, except they have a tw they have a they have a speed limit. So like you're kind of like 
Oh, of course. Yeah, you're. Yeah, it would be a pretty boring race. <laughs> 10, 15 miles an hour. Yeah, race. it's something like that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, one thing I I always do is I try to keep like a storytelling sort of arch going on, like a hero's journey, if you want. But today, um, actually, I know that you have such a rich story that I want to try like a different approach. Okay. Okay. Um, first of all, I'm going to throw five things at you. Cool. Right? Okay. And I want to hear the, your story, the story behind these five things. Great. Yeah. All right. I like but this. those five things are in chronological order. Okay. So you know what's coming, right? Okay. Right. The first thing I'm going to ask you is the Wii Loop machine. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, why? Oh, man. Yeah. That was a project. I did initially as part of my master's um, in sound design here at the university, and they, um, the Wii remote had just come out. The Wii, well, the Wii had yeah. just come out. Before you continue, I just wanna wanna say something for the audience that's yeah. listening. It's like, Jan was a dragon's den. <laughs> You're giving that's, away the ending, yeah. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> then, please continue. <laughs> so that's the hook. <laughs> I was on Dragon's Den. It was a funny journey. Like so, the the Wii had just come out. So this was in two thousand six or seven, and uh, to the point where it was available in the U.S., but it hadn't quite come out as much, or it wasn't as available in the U.K. I can't remember the details, but I remember I went back to visit my parents, bought a few Wii remotes, and brought them back here. And they were probably amongst the first set of Wii remotes to be kind of in the in hands of the public and. There was this kind of, there had been sort of interest on the internet about them, I think, because they were um, wireless Bluetooth motion controllers, like they had uh, accelerometers in them and infrared uh, sensors for pointing. And I think there was something really, um, something really appealed to a lot of people um, about those because up until then, that sort of technology had, that sort of combination of technology had been, would have been quite expensive to put together. Um, and I think a lot of people saw a really interesting opportunity to build, to hack stuff using them. So like, because it was so exciting as a technology, people were like, like the, when the Xbox Kinect came out and everybody was like, oh my God, absolutely, you so can track idea. things. Yeah, okay. yeah, so it was, it was, you know, a lot of times when these things come out, you get, um, a mega excitement, particularly around motion controllers, I think. Um, and certainly the Wii Remote was no exception to that. Um, and I got really excited about it, and I got really excited about it as a musical interface because I had just started learning how to make music software or using Max MSP in particular to make interactive sound software. And so, you know, these two things intersected at, at, at the right time. So you were me. like, you had this thing in your hand, you, yeah. could, you could track movement, and yeah. then you, you just started playing with Max SP, right? Exactly. And you're like... Yeah, these two things were like, they just dropped in my lap at exactly the same time. <laughs> Which is, you know, I think there's an interesting lesson there. I mean, it's just like really just pure luck of things happening at the right time. So a Japanese guy named Masayuki Akamatsu came out with a little, uh, an object, which is what you use in Max MSP to connect things. Um, came out with an object that just connected to a Wii remote relatively easily over Bluetooth on a laptop. 
And so I downloaded that, I connected them, I managed to get it working pretty quickly. And I started experimenting with it as a musical, kind of building musical software. So I ended up building a quite um, kind of relatively fully featured thing where you could actually layer a bunch of sounds, manipulate each sound independently, um, and, and, and play like a track, sort of, if you prepared it properly, using a single Wii remote and the motion control. I think in, in retrospect, the thing that was probably I'm most impressed with my past self is that I had never done any interface design before. And I kind of worked out like, okay, well maybe if I press the Z button and left, then that should do something. And then right should do another thing. I started doing kind of button combinations to solve a lot of kind of navigational problems and let me play the sound without see, looking at the screen at all. So you can change sounds and move your hands so you could have different pitches. Exactly, yeah. And you could actually get some, some quite complex combinations of sounds and things were synced together so you couldn't re it wouldn't get too messy and all these kinds of things. And I made a video for the submission for the project that I had made. And I made this ridiculous video in the basement of the studios and uh, I uploaded it to YouTube and submitted the video and basically went to bed. And over the over a few days, that like got picked up, I don't even know how, by a couple blogs, by a couple various people, and it ended up getting tens of thousands of views. Which was viral at the time. At the time, it would I would say at the time it was a sort of medium viral. A medium thing. viral, which was like what fifty thousand views. Exactly. So it got a, a ton of views, picked up by some big, fairly big music blog, tech blogs, and music blogs and, and some Nintendo Wii blogs and things like that and, and a few kind of game blogs and things like that. And I think it was basically because I was one of the first people to kind of produce a vaguely finished Wii hack. And certainly I was the first one to make a music-focused one. Um, this is like way before Wii Music that came yeah, out. Yeah, it was like before Wii Music later. came out. Yeah, it was yeah. a year or two before yeah. Wii Music came out. Um, and... Uh, and so it ended up kind of growing some legs. I, I, uh, I ended up um, continuing along with it afterwards, raising a little bit of money to develop the projects a bit further. Um, and I kind of started the idea of building a company around it. That ended up changing direction significantly in a num for a number of reasons. Um, but before it changed direction too much, I did end up, one of the places I did end up uh, was on Dragon's Den. So I got... Uh, contacted by a researcher from Dragon's Den um, to uh, through the university um, to see if I'd be interested in being on the show, essentially. And uh, yeah, there are a lot of stories there, but effectively, I didn't get any money from them. Um, but I did get uh, get them to play the software, and I got selected to be on TV, which it turns out is actually quite difficult. It's they take a minority of the people who film. Um, only a, only a small minority of the people who get films actually make it onto TV, but I did make it onto TV. That opened up another pile of promo and people paying attention to me and getting in touch, and um, I ended up sourcing some great work out of that as well. And that became a big part of my, uh, of my, of my starting points of, of what got me on my feet, essentially, after university. It's funny, like, <clears> how <throat> you, you did start this thing just purely out of, like, hacking desires of, of like you have this cool technology let's see what I can do with it and like <laughs> the Dragon Dance episode right it just like cemented that success in a way because it went from being just as this 
video online to an actual guy that can show you how it works. And then it's funny because the dude from Dragon Den's Dragon's Den, what's his name? The one who played it, yeah. Peter Jones. Yes, yeah. he got up and played it, and it was all the whole thing was very silly. Yeah. And for a moment, if you watch it, you can even think, oh my God, this crazy dude might get some money. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because they, they obviously, it was an interesting one. It, I mean, it, you can actually tell how it went by the length of the segment because they, um, they film for a long time. They film each segment for quite like 40 minutes or something at least, but they only end up showing a couple minutes on TV. They end up, there are three, from my analysis of it, I think, if I remember right, there are basically three types of segments they do. They do long segments where the people either collapse terribly or they're successful. They do very short segments where people are unsuccessful, but it's just like a funny thing. And then they do medium length segments where they're unsuccessful, but it's kind of interesting and obviously nothing goes terribly wrong. So I was one of those medium segments. Yeah. You were the, com the comedic relief. I, essentially, yeah, yeah. It was funny yeah. and it was interesting. It was quirky and they liked it, but they're not going to put any money into it. But like, the poker face was really good as well. <laughs> you can see your hands trembling, but like, you were just like... Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting the way they filmed that because um, when, at least when I did it, um, they they got me it's all on a sound stage in pinewood and they um they get they make it all look like a fake warehouse and everything and there's a fake in my case there were stairs and there was a fake little staircase you go up and everything and you do the pitch they respond to you they talk back to you and everything you have a big long conversation in the end they were just kind of like come on no they asked some stupid questions they were just kind of like obviously trying to get onto television themselves which is an interesting thing they're obviously trying to say things that will be like zingers that will make it to the edit as well. Of course, because they are fighting for their own airtime yeah, as well. Yeah, they need yeah. their own airtime too. And there's five of them. They're competing, yeah, essentially. That's funny. Um, which is interesting. So they're saying things that are like a little bit out, a little bit like trying to like find clever things to say. And I was a lot of them, I was just kind of like, that doesn't really make any sense, you know. But they, so they do all that. Then at the end, they're like, no, thanks. Like, it's been nice, but see you later. So I leave. And then one of the runners stops, stopped me at the door, and I think they do this with everyone, or they did this with everyone at the time, stops you at the door, and, uh, and they say, hold on a second, we're going to clear the set. And so I'm just standing there waiting. Wow. They clear the set, and then they say, okay, we need you to go back upstairs, and we've moved the cameras around, and we've got the crane out, and we need you to do, the, to do your whole pitch again, as if nothing had happened. Um, because we need to get different angles. That's, oh, their, that's their argument. Right. But in practice, right. what they're trying to get is people who are already crying, yeah. you know, who are already upset, who are already nervous. I didn't care. I've done so much theater that like, I was just like, all right, whatever. So I go and do it again. And then they get you to just stand there still while the camera moves around you for five minutes. Wow. So that's when they got this shot of me moving my fingers because I'm always moving my fingers. Yes. And, and I was just like, in, yeah. I was bored. Like, I was like, what the hell am I going to do? So, and it's kind of, it's quite weird to be with all these lights and these cameras moving around you if you're not used to that. So it was interesting. But so anyway, the way they, it's edited is so interesting. Uh, but it, I mean, it, it, it worked out quite well for me, really. It was, and you know, realistically, it's funny because thinking back about that, like, I do see how it was in many ways a foolish direction to go down. Not the Dragon's Den side of things specifically, but like, yeah, I mean, like the Wii Loop machine as software was cool, um, but 
and like I'm pleased with it and it was a cool hack but like there wasn't really major commercial potential in that alone but then yeah I mean so what I was missing what took me almost two years maybe a year and a half of working on it and developing it and making new versions and making new bits of software and everything what it took me ages but I eventually learned and realized that what was interesting about what I was doing and what was good and what I should develop further was not specifically the Wii Loop machine. It was a more general kind of like interactive sound, interactive media, new approaches to music and sound and gaming and controllers and interface. And that is actually where all virtually all of my work has come from since. Yeah. And that segue beautifully into the fourth, the second thing I'm going to ask number you, two. I'm going to okay. tell you number two, which is Lucky Frame. And into Lucky Frame, open and close bracket, we have three things, which is Battletail, Wave Trip, and Gentleman. Yeah. So, okay. Tell me about tell me about this. So Lucky Frame then was the studio that I set up. It was the company I set up initially as as the kind of vehicle for the Wii Loop machine. But as like you say, as just just kind of transitioning into how it became really a more generalist studio um, where we made games. So I hired, there were two other, there were three of us in total, Jonathan and Sean and I, um, as the kind of full timers. And then we would work with other people like you and on, on, rend- on, on projects here and there. And we ended up doing, we, well, we, we ended up making games partially because there was funding there, but also because it became an interesting method for exploring this kind of interactive musical sound stuff that became the sort of core our sort of core selling point and and sort of research field (laughs) if you will um and uh we made a couple little test things and then we found some funding to make a set of musical games um including bad hotel and wave trip so they were those two were part of a series of of um of games that were where the, the premise was to kind of embed music generation into the gameplay. Um, Bad Hotel was a whole world of and of itself. So I mean, that was our second. That was the second big, I would in quotes, uh, game we released, and it and it really took off much more than we were expecting. It was, was that like the way I saw at the time Bad Hotel? It was more. It was a bit like a break. I would call it a break, yeah. Because I think it was Plags Loves Beats, which which was before Battletail, yes, right? Yeah. Um, although it was interesting, it didn't really get the same traction that Battletail did. Yeah, Pug Loves Beats. Pugs Loves Beats was our first game. We learned a lot from it, I think, and I'm glad we did it. Mm. We didn't sell that much, and we didn't even get that much attention. But we got a couple award nominations for it, so people started to see that it was interesting, that we were onto something. We took a lot of lessons from that, particularly from a promo and release and um, PR and all that standpoint for our Bad Hotel. And Bad Hotel was much bigger. Um, we had also released a little music toy previously to that called Mugic. And Mugic is what kind of unlocked the, the funding side of things. So that did quite well. We um, but didn't make us a bunch of money, got a lot of attention. Pugs Love Beats was our first gamey game kind of thing. Didn't get that much attention, but kind of we were able to test out a lot of ideas. Bad Hotel, uh, you know, it's really hard to explain why something succeeds. I think we can 
we could go back and gener- and and pretend like we knew what we were doing but like man we just got really crazily lucky you know like the i think there's something like it looked really good there's the the the, the visuals looked really great we were at a time when it was easier to sell indie games on any platform but this was on iOS it was a less crowded environment. Way sure. less crowded. We got some light featuring from Apple, which at the time was a big deal. Hey, hey, light featuring. Wave Trip was on the walls. On so Wave Apple Trip, yeah, store. Wave Trip. We got even bigger. But yeah. by the time We're it came to, to Wave tell, Trip, yes. when it came, by the time we get to Wave Trip, we got more promo from Apple, but fewer sales. So even by then, the transition had begun that to make things actually to make to have the selling much harder. Um, so the, the light featuring we got earlier with Bad Hotel was worth more than the heavy featuring we got with Wave Trip. Which is insane if you think about it. It's really, it's really, it's, I mean, the market now is virtually impossible. So, but Bad Hotel, we did really well. We got lots of attention, tons of attention. I mean, every big game blog, every big game website, most press and media, um, like print media covered it. Um, lots of, even on uh, on um, Twitter and people were making YouTube videos and all these things and it it, it was great it was amazing I mean and particularly because it's like a pretty experimental game like it's a weird weird game it's not a normal game like it's a strange thing and um, and like from a game design perspective there are some big flaws in it you know it's <laughs> like not like it's it's cool it's a really cool thing is it a great well designed game I don't I don't think so I'm really proud of it. I think it's beautiful and it's a cool thing. And it, I think we're kind of, there's an interesting kind of underlying sort of cultural subtext in the game as well. But like like the all the promo material is built out of uh, uh, the demolition of buildings in Scotland, right? And like that was this kind of little secret sort of social message that I snuck into everything. And it's like, and actually weirdly people loved that, you know? And so there's there's something really cool about all that. But like, yeah, and then so we were able to turn that into an Android release and then a Humble Bundle release and then a Steam release and we got a couple of award nominations. We won a Scottish BAFTA for it. Like, it was a, it was a big thing for a studio and right. that was definitely, yeah. I like how you glance over your, your Scottish BAFTA, but I like to tell a story about that. I remember the first time I've ever been into your studio or into the Lucky Frame studio, which looked like a crazy professor studio because <laughs> Jan has a um, knack for building machines of all kind that makes noises. And at the time, um, you were making all sorts of crap. Like, seriously, it was insane. But on the table that you used to solder, there was the BAFTA. Oh, yeah. So I remember, like, walking into the, the office, and I was just rummaging through your crap, and here it is. There is the BAFTA. Paperweight. Yes. Yeah. Like, sitting there next to the solder, and a bits of metal you had there, and some couple of uh, cables and whatever you were building at the time. And I was like, is that real? And you're like, oh, yeah, 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 we want, we want a Scottish BAFTA for Bad Hotel. But, yeah, no, but... Really? <laughs> it's like yeah. just it's still not, the case. It's it's somewhere. It's on a shelf. Not caring at all. Uh, so, I mean, it's not cool. caring, but like it's like you know we won the award, whatever. I mean, like what do you want me to do? I mean, do? yeah, it's like you know we didn't we don't do it for awards. It was cool to get. It was nice to get. Um, but also like I don't know. I don't really know how to react to rewards to awards. It's a hard. It's a hard one. But yeah, I mean, so Pato Hotel was this amazing thing. We then so we made a few other games and we got to Wave Trip. 
A wave trip is actually like from a music standpoint, I'm more proud of it. Like a music and sound design standpoint, it's, it's polished. Again. It's really polished. It's like really gentle. It's not punishing. Like you can you can it can you can play it the way you want to play it. And I think so. I was really pleased with that. It didn't sell nearly as well as Bad Hotel, but people did seem to like it. And there were some interesting kind of things about the generation we kind of and i love the promo that we made for it like it looks really nice and we made these silly videos some of which did get a ton of views as well and like we like we I, we did well i'm really pleased with wave trip and uh, <laughs> we need to uh, let's explain people what we did for for wave trip yeah so the the main character in wave trip is this kind of weird little humanoid space spaceman guy with a triangular um, head with the triangular head is sort of a spaceship actually more than a person and so we made uh, a large kind of human-sized version of that costume and then placed the person in the costume. I think it was me a lot of times. Yourself. Yeah, okay, it was me in kind of really bizarre locations, like in a bus, in a bathroom, in a... I can't remember where it was. And, uh, and just, like, surprising people and then saying, you know, oh, this, this game will sneak up on you and get in your head, basically. Um, That's it. And That's we did it. stuff like... I mean, it, like, I was thinking about this the other day. We went and, like went to the bus depot and got them to drive a bus in the drown the depot for us with filled with a bunch of my friends and like filming it like it's just totally silly it was so good yeah we just went out and said ah oh, fuck it let's just do this yeah. so like and the, the one in the bathroom was my favorite yeah that one your worked friend really well. pants down yeah. playing on his phone and then yeah. lifts his head up and you are in the corner yeah. dressed like wave print. i think that was oh. the most popular one i i think uh yeah we did well with that and it was a great game, really nice game. And um, that, I think, yeah, so that was the last one of this kind of little, like, pack of music games that we made, essentially, or that form of music game. We certainly did loads of other musical things. And then we started getting really interested in local multiplayer stuff. Um, yes. Which kind of stemmed from the music game things, too. And that's where we made Gentlemen, which How was really happen? interesting. Because, like, you, you were, like, heavy on music and gameplay and gameplay in this like yeah. beautiful combination since like yeah. gentlemen was really the first time you guys kind of like trying to beard off of it we did and i think um you know maybe that was a mistake maybe not i don't know but I it was I, I think it was i think partially we needed a break from music generation mm -hmm. gameplay partially we were doing other musical projects um building instruments and stuff like that that like meant that we were doing that stuff already and we kind of wanted to make a game and we were also like, we just, I think um, through a lot of explorations and the fact that there were several of us working in the same room all the time, really, really wanted to make local multiplayer games, just games that you're playing together on the same device, especially with iPads. Um, we kind of got really into this idea that people crowded around a single iPad playing a game. There are a few of these now out, but at the time there weren't that many. Um, so we did a test one called Pioing, which I think might still be available on the iStore, iPhone store, I don't know. A really abstract little test thing. Um, and then kind of played around with a few more ideas and ended up making this um, uh, Victorian-themed um, kind of uh, platform arena battle game, basically. But totally silly, like really ridiculously silly, over-the-top silliness. Um, which was fun. It was a really great exercise. And we made it for iPad and we made it for, um, for PCs as well. And um, it was, it's a fun, it's a fun, fun game. Uh, totally ridiculous, fast-paced silliness. 
And uh, it was our first real Android release as well, yes. um, which was fascinating. I mean, totally fascinating. A.K.A. a nightmare. Yeah, it was a nightmare. Um, we ended up, uh, it became, at the time, it became our most played game ever. Um, In terms of playtime. Yeah. Um, because it got picked up by um, Chinese and Russian piracy sites. And our, uh, you could see them playing on our, on our analytics. You could see how often they were playing. So they were playing it, and they were, they were enjoying it. And there was nobody buying it. I mean, this, I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but it was like double figures in sales. It was something like 50 or 60 sales versus 10 to 20,000 people playing. Oh, um, that's so It was crazy. Crushing. It was like the, the ratio was, was nuts. And we posted about this online, and it kind of blew up, and everybody wanted to talk to us about it. But we, uh, the most interesting thing was all of the other developers who got in touch and said, like, yeah, totally, I see the same exact thing, the same exact ratio. It's totally not on oh, that. It's not. Painful. I don't know what it's like now. It's probably the same, but. Probably um, worse, if you think about it. Yeah, probably. I mean, your drawing market is 10 times what it used to be, maybe? Yeah, and it's just so interesting because they actually have, like, they have, like, like, top 10 lists and stuff like yeah. these piracy sites are really developed I oh think yeah, yeah the yeah. people that like i think the people who frequent them probably don't even consider themselves pirates. pirates a lot of them it's like you know at the time i don't know what it's like now but at the time we only released on google play right and in china there's no there was no method for people in china to buy things off of google play so at the end piracy is not just it's the only way. Yeah, I mean, it didn't occur to them to pay for it because they couldn't pay for it. And there's this other site, and they, it's a free game, and they download it, and it's great. You know, and they're, they play they're not playing. They're not paying for it. Of course not. That's, they, there's no method for them to pay for it. So it was this really fascinating kind of insight into a little world. Um, Crashing, though. Yeah, it was it was tough, but, but no, nah, it didn't really bother me that much. I mean, we had gotten some funding to make that game, so that we weren't as dependent on sales, which helped us make a lot of creative decisions that we didn't need to worry too much about selling 5,000 copies or 20,000 copies or whatever. Um, so what happened at the end? The Twilight With days. Lucky Frame. Yeah. Um, so we, we released a few more games and, uh, and we did, and I start, we started combining the work, the game work with other kind of interactive work. So we did kind of experimental physical game controllers that we showed at, um, a number of festivals and stuff around the world and those ended up being really popular so for example we made this caterpillar simulator game i know you would go called there. uh raffle pillar <laughs> the raffle pillar yeah raffle pillar is a two-player first person <laughs> can you find a video online simulator. of the raffle pillar yeah well yeah yeah there's there you can you can google it uh there are a lot of random youtube videos from various game festivals i would uh, really advise people to google raffle pillar yeah because it's hilarious. <laughs> it's great. I mean, it's one of the best things we made. I th in many ways, I think it was the best thing we made because it was a kind of interesting. It started off as a sort of critique of virtual reality systems and making a really hyper low cost VR set. Would you explain how it works? So it works by there's a little hut, there's a little house with a TV screen in it. And it's all, sh and it says Ruffle Pillar on it. It's very pretty. And there's a little grass, like felt grass around it and everything. And there's two players, and each player puts on a caterpillar costume with big eyes at the feet and you lie on the floor and you put each person puts their head in this hut and they look upwards at a screen and the screen is a first person view of a caterpillar 
And so the two players roll around, they have their sensors attached to the costumes, and they have to roll around to control their caterpillars on the screen. So crucially, <laughs> there's, it's, so it's like hilarious to watch. So there's, whenever we were, it was displayed, there would always be a TV screen or a projector or something showing what the people playing were seeing. So it became a kind of like an audience thing. So it was perfect for games festivals, and it, it toured a lot. We went. It, it's, I mean, it toured. It traveled more than I've ever traveled. It was in Germany. It was in Australia. It was in Seattle. It was in. I mean, it's been all over the world. It's just and the perfect game for any gaming event. It's, it's totally so hilarious. Silly. I mean, it's so silly, and people just loved it. They really, really loved it. And so we did that. We did a few other kind of experimental things like that. We ran an event called Tacos, Bluegrass, and Video Games here that featured a bunch of games like that. We got more and more into that stuff. And we released one last game called the Nightmare Cooperative, which is a great little like roguelike kind of turn-based game, um, which I love. I think it's still a beautiful game. Um, I mean, that was a beautiful effort. Yeah, I, th like, I think it's, a fa I think it's our, definitely our best designed game. It's like, it's what I would define as the most mature game you yeah. guys made. Yeah, definitely. It was. A, I'm really proud of that game. I think it's beautiful and well considered, and it looks good, and it sounds good, and it's fun to play, and it's challenging, and everything. And it sold. It sold a few copies, but it not not a ton. And it kind of got to this point where we were like, "Listen, we can keep chasing after money to try to do, uh, or uh, to to make to for like funding to make games that might sell to fund our interesting work." Or we can kind of call it here, pay off our debts, go our separate ways, and do the different projects that we've been doing already and kind of shoehorning into Lucky Frame. So I'd been doing other, like building musical instruments for people or building software for people that kind of I was doing sort of through Lucky Frame, but it didn't really make much sense. And I was starting to be a little bit less happy with the work that I was doing on my own because I was trying to do to raise money and for Lucky Frame games and then also do the PR and do all these things. And it just became a natural decision to say like, we've done really well, let's let's call it here. So Jonathan's off working for, uh, actually I don't know if I'm allowed to say who he's working for, a powerful, good, amazing company doing incredible things. Sean is working here in, in Edinburgh for Blazing Griffin doing games. And I've been working on other projects myself as well. So. It's worked out really well, I think, for all three of us. And now it's at this interesting point where Raffle Pillar is in the VNA. It was it's been it was selected to be seriously, a, yeah, in Dundee, in uh, in London, in London, damn. And uh, as part of the, they have a big video games show that's just opened, and the Raffle Pillar was selected as an example of an alternative controller game. And it's it's not playable because it was too much trouble for them to actually get it playing, but it's displayed up hanging from the ceiling. Uh, as if it were being played. And so it's a museum piece. It's and a museum piece. That's yeah. hilarious. I so mean, Raffle Pillar is a museum piece. <laughs> and then other interesting things have happened recently too. So Bad Hotel has been removed from the iOS store, from the iTunes store, because we hadn't updated it in a while. Of course. And uh, it's been, you know, the last update was ages ago. They have the operating system upgrades. And it's this interesting thing where it's just kind of like, well, on the one hand, you know, I got that email from Apple. I, you know, I, I knew it was going to happen. They'd, they'd warned me about it months ago, saying, if you don't update it, we'll remove your app from the store. And it's like, and I knew that. And it's, you get this thing, and it's like, that was a thing, and it was a good time, and it was a good thing. And you know what? This is 
working in the digital life and with digital like if the product is digital it will disappear and i think there's like a thing there's a nice there's a nice wholesome thing to that there's a nice thing where i can like tie that off in my life and in my brain and say that was great it existed it's gone just put on a boat on the lake yeah Launched fire. the burning yeah. fire arrow, <laughs> burning and arrow. it's burned, and it's gone to Valhalla, it. and the like. That's it, and it, it's a really nice feeling, actually. It's gone into iOS 11 cemetery somewhere, yeah. <laughs> along with all the other indie games from yeah. 2014 or whatever it was. They're all gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's like you know, it felt like with your last game, that was like your swan song. You know, it was just like it was a beautiful one, and it was that you just instead of kind of like dragging yourself but maybe do a little bit of commercial work or doing a little bit more um, anything really because at one point I remember you guys were doing any sorts of project were coming yeah. your way you just decided to call it quit and I really you know I respect that because you you, ha- you had to see it you had to see it you had to be able to say you know we've done our best we worked really hard that's it I think mean, that's yeah. really hard for people to let it go. Like it was that. hard. I mean, I'm not. I'm not lying. It was. It was a tough decision at the time. But um, the. Uh, but yeah, I. I don't regret it at all. I think it was. I think I don't. I think there's a lot of. Um, I think maybe it's. It's easy to to hold on to stuff too long. I think it's good to to move on. Learned a lot. Did a ton of. I mean, I crammed more. Uh, you know, into those lucky frame years than some people get to do in 30-year careers. And, like, I'm so lucky. You know, that's that was really great, really interesting to see. Learned a lot of lessons. Maybe one day I'll start another studio working with other people. Maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Well, like, that's a nice segue. Well, kind of like we are moving sideways in this with the next thing because the next thing is Matthew Herbert. Yeah. He was young after being in Dragon's Den and winning a Scottish BAFTA, also being on stage with thousands of people watching. So, like, tell me about it. Yeah, so after, that was a really, I mean, the origin story, that's pretty fascinating, too. I mean, somewhere amongst all of the Bad Hotel wave trip time, I can't remember exactly when, um, I we got a call from a Belgian marketing agency uh, who wanted to do some projects, and they wanted to hire us because we were a cool studio. Uh, to develop some apps and something. So we did one or two for them for like ridiculously low amounts of money and I was getting a bit sick of it and I was kind of like, okay, no more. But he said, oh, no, no, keep going, keep going. We're going to do, I want you to like, we'll just do this one more thing because then we you do the really cool project. That's how these agencies always get you. They're that always is, like, yeah. they're always like, oh, do this really boring thing for <laughs> me for a thousand pounds. So because we might do an amazing thing uh, for 25 grand next year and of course it never comes out but the um so they said can you come down to london and meet with us uh and a musician who are talking to about um doing some kind of uh, campaign so i said yeah sure i mean why not so they paid like i had some other things to do anyway i think somebody else paid for my train or something so i was kind of like fine whatever let's just go so i went free travel yeah like it was one of these things (laughs) i was just like i may as well take advantage of this so i went down and went for lunch and it was matthew herbert that i was meeting and uh i had of course heard of matthew herbert and his work with bjork and maloko and all these big kind of um pop star people and i was i was excited you know i never i you know get a chance to meet a musician of that level every day and um, got to, 
And I sat down, and I was there before these Belgian guys showed up. So I sat down. So you had a chat with Matt. So I had it. So I managed to say hey to him. And I remember very vividly the first thing after kind of introducing yourselves, ourselves to him. He said, so what have you done that I would have heard of? Wow. <laughs> so I was like, uh, nothing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, I have no Hi. idea. <laughs> so I, I showed him some of my work. I remember I showed him a, a, a project I had done recently at the time, which was making uh, robot musical instruments out that reacted to mushroom spores. Uh, falling from mushrooms in real time. Of course you did. So that just that project, one of those. And uh, he must and he, have thought you were mad. Well, I, he obviously thought there was something interesting because he started telling me about this project that he was doing that he was finishing uh, around pigs, and he would he had followed the life of a pig from birth to being eaten and recorded it at every stage, and had turned it into this kind of experimental album, and he was planning the tour for it. And I was like, wow, that sounds really interesting. And I just threw a couple random ideas out at him. And then these, these this agency people showed up. And th that meeting went so poorly. Like, it was the worst. I It was fine with me. I didn't, I mean, I had no engagement with it, really. But I felt kind of terrible for those guys because it was, it was just savage. It was just like there was nothing there. It was so clearly not going to happen. And so the meeting ended. And I was like, boy, oh, well, so nothing's going to come out of that. And then, but Matthew gave me a call a few weeks later and said, I'm going to be in Edinburgh for the book festival or something, or film festival or something. And um, do you want to meet? And we met and we talked and he said, basically, he wanted me to build an instrument for the pig tour and then go on tour with him. And I, I mean, I was kind of like, I'm not about to turn that down. So uh, <laughs> sure enough, I said yes. And that started this kind of like a, a, an ongoing collaboration where we've been kind of continuously working on stuff together for for the years ever since um so i built an interactive musical pigsty for him for that show and toured literally all over the world i mean we played everywhere it was amazing just a second yeah. i'll interrupt you there because you said what did you build an interactive musical pigsty of course you did yeah can you tell us more about <laughs> so, that <laughs> the idea was i wanted to make an he wanted an instrument that would kind of reflect the themes of the album so the album was made entirely out of pig sounds um but kind of turned like manipulated quite heavily. So I made, I got a bunch of string controllers out of old games, uh, game systems. So string controllers are like basically plastic strings you can pull and twist and things like that, and you get data out of it. And I made a system for manipulating sounds using 12 of those at a time. Uh, so you get quite a big data set that you can then use to manipulate all this music on stage and we would build it every night for the show to make it look like a big fence and we'd fill it that inside that fence with straw so it was kind of so you'd smell the straw you would and then we had somebody was cooking bacon on stage as well so you would get this kind of whole like feeling of of uh, it was a kind of full-on experience um so yeah built that for him and we toured everywhere we played venues i mean amazing amazing venues like i so so lucky to play some of these venues I, I can't i mean i just like it's ridiculous when i look back and think of what we did with a super experimental show as well that's what's really great is like we're playing to like we played at bergheim you know like bergheim a massive massive huge berlin venue and there were like people there seeing us make crazy house techno music out of pig sounds uh, <laughs> with an interactive musical pig style, you know? So, I mean, we, like, I, you know, <laughs> what can I do? Like, what can I do that 
I, what can I complain about in my career, right? Like, that's like such an amazing thing. I think you peaked too early, man. Yeah, yeah, maybe. It's all, I mean, whatever. But I peaked, right? Like, yeah, I, some people I never peaked. even peak. So, yeah, so it's good. Um, anyway, but we've done tons of stuff since then, made a bunch of instruments for him, helped him out with various installations. I just released an, uh, he just released an EP, uh, a four track EP, and one of those is his track, and one of those is my track, and two other friends of ours make tracks that just came out a couple months ago um so it's just been a really super fruitful collaboration i'm really lucky to have him on my side i can because he's he's he knows a lot he's a very very uh uh um, yeah he knows he knows it all and he's seen it all it's great it's great to be able to collaborate with him to work with him on anything yeah. That was absolute madness when you told me originally. You're like, oh, I'm doing this thing, and you were using this controller called what, Game Tracks? Game Tracks. I'm still using them. In fact, yeah. I just finished a new thing. With and them. it's like, yep. they're quite hard to find. I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, it's not something you buy in a shop or eBay for that matter. Like, yeah, you, I've you them might all. find them, <laughs> but you actually bought them all. Yeah. I still remember once I was walking back home, passing, uh, I was passing a charity shop, and yeah. I sent you a text. Dude, they sell the game tracks to somebody. They have, in, that, yeah. they have in the window. Did you yeah. buy it? In the I end? think I did end up buying that one. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, that I mean, to so this funny. day, if I see a game track, I would absolutely buy it. I like, mean, they're so useful. No doubt. They're just like they're great con controllers. You can take them apart and you can hack them into new things so quickly and easily. And it's a really fun thing. I mean, I've just finished building a little, very small little uh, instrument out of two game track controllers for. A festival up in Aberdeen that I'm, that I'm going to use in a few weeks. It's Have you ever spoken with the company that made this? So once I, uh, the closest I've ever come was I, I was giving a presentation in London about uh, I don't remember what, I think Lucky Frame stuff or something, and I was explaining how we used this game track controller, and I'm I was like, oh well, you know this game controller failed because it was the software they designed for it was terrible and it was they made these really bad games and the controller wasn't really working for it and everything. And I said, had anybody ever heard of it? And the guy in the front row said, I worked on that controller. Not <laughs> 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 really bad. Um, so yeah. you're like, your controller is amazing. Game sucks. Yeah, I don't know what his role was. I hope, I certainly hope it wasn't like a sort of engine programmer or something. The games they actually made for them are so bad. But I don't know if it was just ahead of its time or what? I, mean, I, I, I think probably. I mean, like, I remember the the robot one. There was a punching. There's a, yeah, uh, Dark Wind, it's called. Yeah. yeah. And, like, but look at the Nintendo Labo now. Yeah. It all works with, like, it's similar thing, principles. Right? Yeah. yeah. So it's like... So you'd think it would be a, it would have been possible then, too. But I think they just didn't really do a good design process on the software. I think so. It, it must have been the usual. You know, you got X amount of time to make it. It yeah. spent too much time on the controller. And yes. then it was like, oh, God, you have to make the games now. Yeah. And boom. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. Um, yeah, because you're right. I mean, it's just... it's The tech is literally... It's ancient tech. It's a little knob that twists. That's it. It's just a nice little gear that gets pulled when you pull the string. Um, so there's nothing fancy about it. Uh, but yeah, I think you're right. You can kind of, you can, you can just feel the lack of kind of investment in the important side of yeah. things. Um, and then, like with hindsight, you know, 2020, yeah. you look back and you're like, damn, totally. that could have been a yeah. success if they only done it in a certain way. Yeah, well, potentially, or maybe there's just the market out there as well. Yeah. Either it's hard to know. But yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So next thing. Yeah. I'm going um, personal. Oh, okay. I'm gonna throw. Corey Sesnick are you oh yeah yeah your lovely brother my brother yeah he's well we've worked a ton um, 
I guess I guess we're I, I, I it's always hard to analyze these things yourself, but I guess I would say we're we're uh, we're quite close as far as brothers go in the sense that I mean we get along really well, but also we've done a lot of work together, which maybe is relatively unusual. He's an amazing musician. I mean he's a uh, banjo, guitar, accord, um, harmonica. I mean you name it. He can pick it up and, and play it, and he's. He's just fantastic, and I've been really lucky to be able to work with him on his music as well as make music together. Um, I've uh, yeah done a ton of playing on his uh, on his new album that came out last year, and uh, before that, I worked with his bands, uh, producing them. He, I even went out to Ethiopia when he lived there and, and worked with his band out there and. Um, helped record and produce a bunch of music there, which was an amazing adventure. Um, and he's, he's continued on and he's doing, he's doing really well. He lives in Paris now and he's, um, his music is, is just fantastic. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of one of those things where we're always, I think we always know we're going to keep on getting projects going together. Um, and we're just, I think we can, we can work together really quickly and, that's quite an unusual thing, really, to have to have to know that you can just kind of like pick up where you left off. Doesn't matter when that was, and just kind of like start making things right away, and know that your interests and kind of approaches will align a fair amount, no matter what. You know, I think it's so. I'm really lucky to have that, basically. So tell me more about your project with him in Africa. So Corey's lived in. He lived in Ethiopia for a good few years. And he got a bunch of musical projects going there, including one giant sprawling band called Misto Misto. And we made this totally bonkers album together, this kind of weird like sci-fi prog rock Afro pop album um, with a bunch of Ethiopian musicians, a bunch uh, together with a bunch of non-Ethiopians who just happened to live in Addis Ababa with, with him. Um, and it was just a fantastic kind of mix of of all of these different influences. Um, he also ended up making another smaller band. And one of the things we, I mean, one of the most fun things we did is uh, is y you kind of have to react to challenges when you're when you're recording in a place like Addis. Um, and you know, occasional power outages are not unusual, for example. And uh, at one point, we just kind of like the power went out for some amount of time you don't know how long um but the thing that's amazing about ethiopia is that when it's not rainy season it's guaranteed to be really nice out <laughs> it's it's not too hot it's not too cold it's like perfect you can just sit around outside and so we got everything that we could that didn't require power so just battery powered stuff um and we they sat around uh, and played an acoustic session uh, that we made a video of that I would highly recommend people watch. Um, uh, and they ended up calling that little group Damakaze. Uh, and I feel I couldn't, rec I couldn't produce their album, unfortunately, but I was really pleased to be part of that kind of initial genesis because it's so great. It's this kind of like Appalachian banjo music mixed with... Um, yeah, I'm not sure... I wouldn't. I, I hesitate to call things traditional, but it's sort of it, certainly traditional Ethiopian music, uh, instruments um, being played together, and it, it just matches so well, and it's so groovy. I mean, I think um, Ethiopian jazz gets a lot of press 
uh, and a lot of coverage, but I think there's a, there's a, there is a whole other world of Ethiopian music, which is just so fascinating. Um, they have really fascinating kind of rhythmic structures and melodic structures that actually map really nicely onto something like Appalachian music. Um, and so you, that kind of combo of, there were four of them playing in that little session in my brother's driveway with all the power out is just like such a magical moment. Yeah, um, you guys are jumping like crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's really amazing, I mean, they, they have this really amazing um, drum kind of setup called the Kebro, which is just so groovy. It's like, they it, and quite hard to play because it's like a few drums um, and what, what in a drum kit would be the bass drum is played with one hand. Um, and then there's several other kind of tom style drums, but they, they don't quite sound like tom toms. They sound sort of like a mix between a snare and a tom. Um, and so if you're used to playing a drum drum kit, it's it's like really hard to play actually because you have to hit this 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 sort of low frequency with your hand. And but it just gets this incredible groove. And then for Misto in the Misto Misto album, I ended up being able to in a couple of the tracks being able to kind of digitally manipulate some of those and do some kind of fun glitchy edits of those Kebro tracks, which is a really fun little thing to play with. Um, so yeah, there's the, yeah, that was a whole fun project, definitely. Oh man, that sounds amazing. The fact that you and your brother can just hang out and jam <laughs> like that, it's just like, uh, it's mind blowing. It's fun, yeah. I mean, he's certainly, uh, He's, he's, he's just an incredible musician. I'm, I'm lucky to play with him, basically. Wow. So are you guys going to release another album at some mm. point in the future? Have you been talking about it? Or? We're always talking about always it. He's, talking he's, about starting, it. he's starting work on a new album pretty soon. Um, so I don't know. We'll see how much I can get involved in it. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think our dream is to do a kind of hybrid electroacoustic album at some point. Um, All you need is one album that kind of blew up. So that you can tour together around the world. Well, that would be great, uh, but I, yeah, the music business is a hard one. I, I think uh, the, the focus would certainly be on the creative side rather than the commercial oh, side. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and that's why you guys have s such peculiar and like interesting projects. And the music is always one of a kind. And that Misto uh, project was just—it's bonkers, mad. Yeah, 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 it's a fun one. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah. there will be more. I think, like I. I think we, so I've gone quite heavily down into kind of experimental electronic music recently and building kind of weird software and music, weird instruments and things that make funny noises. Yes. And my brother's been kind of developing his music as well. And I think I would love for that to come together and for me to do a kind of, I don't know if it's about remixing his music or about working together on an electronic album or something. But I think there's that, that would be my guess as to where I would like. Where we that might take sounds it. insane. Oh, it'd be great. It'd Completely be really great. bonkers. Yeah. A, people, like, if people want to come and see your music side of things, where can they find you? It's been so I haven't played live that much recently. I mean, I'd like to do more. Um, I, at the moment, kind of, you know, my uh, my output is is I'm focusing a lot of my output at the moment on building instruments. Um, so I think like in a way my next release will actually be a bunch of instruments um, so which could be really fun and then I need to see whether those are things that will be for sale or just for kind of like actually the re then the real practical release is YouTube videos about yeah. these instruments you know so <laughs> it becomes an interesting thing of like so where would you find those YouTube videos then well I'll be releasing them on my website soon I've been quiet because I've been working on the on them but I think uh, yeah so I is think that Jan Sesnik 
That's going to be jansaznek.com. Yeah. Dot com. Okay. Yeah. Um, Sesnek is S E S E Z N E C. Sesnek. Sesnek. Jan is Y A N N. Y A N N. Jan Sesnek. I think, yeah, it's interesting to, like, I think I've been thinking, I've been, I've been, playing around a lot with this idea of like what does it mean to actually release music nowadays and like play and record music like what's the value in it and what's the both creatively and commercially I think is it it's a super challenging thing I'm certainly not alone in that but now the next last thing of the five things stick to the uh, it's a more familiar personal team and it's Arthur oh yeah, yeah. well yeah I've got kids now <laughs> um yeah, it's funny. It's funny. It's something I don't really talk about much uh, publicly, and I certainly don't um, bring up much in kind of my social media and stuff or anything like that. I think um, it's not been like a majorly career-changing thing to have kids. I think uh, maybe that's just because I like, you know, I'm I'm quite boring anyway, <laughs> and having kids is like it just is actually kind of matched quite well with me being with me being a boring person. Um, it certainly has added uh, some interesting questions into my work. I think there's you know one of my projects in particular now is very much a response to having a kid. I think, and I think uh, I think like everybody needs to have a sort of like. A new parent project, I think, like that tends to happen. A new parent um, project, yeah, like. the thing that they're like <laughs> that, that kind of reflects like how much of a kind of um, a sort of a new th- the new thing that's added into your brain when you have uh, when you have kids. What's the new um, thing? Well, so for me, I think my reaction to it has been it's it's an ex- certainly an extension on previous projects I've done, but it, it ends up being about media and memory and. Um, so I'm working on a set of musical instruments now called uh, um, the Book of Knowledge of Impractical Musical Devices. So it's, it's, a, it's a set of four instruments that are deeply impractical in some way, um, but will. They have, they're, not, they're not finished yet. They're, uh, they're still in the, the, um, the product design is still being done, but they will hopefully look totally amazing um, and sound totally amazing but be incredibly impractical um, very hard to play yeah very to hard to play and go over in, there and press a button well, well exactly that's the kind of idea so the um there there are four different ones and they're each kind of exploring a different form of impracticality um and there's a whole kind of set of philosophical reasons for why i kind of want to do that but in practice so then you know one of them is for example a a even more than that, it's a GPS-based musical instrument, so you have to. <laughs> it changes depending on where you are, and, and you and have to be outside to play it because so you, have you have to be to able be to outside. see a satellite. Yeah, yeah, to move around town to have different noises, yeah, different sounds. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. Yeah, so it'll mad. be different, and it'll be totally different depending on where you are in the world. Um, so it's th- that's one of them. But the another one that I'm working on is um, <laughs> has the working title of, and so each of them have a, a quite strange title that kind of reflects what the, um, what the instrument is. And this other one that I've, I posted a little kind of teaser of it on my Instagram is an instrument called, um, everything you love will one day be taken from you, <laughs> which is, <laughs> and it's a really simple thing. It's a button. Basically it's a single button that has a speaker in it. Um, when you press the button, you hear a sound. 
that, uh, but every time you've heard the sound and every time you've pressed the button, it destroys that sound permanently a little bit as well. So there's a system inside with a, there's a little computer inside, maybe a little Raspberry Pi or something. Um, I'm testing a few different ones, but at the moment it's a Raspberry Pi. You press the button, it plays the sound off of a, uh, out of its out of its local memory and when it reaches the end of that sound or when you release the button it uh, essentially puts a little glitch into that sound into the local memory um, so if that's the only copy of the sound so the, it only it only functions as an instrument if that's the only copy of the sound in the world that's in there that's in the box so once it's played the glitch make the sound playing differently yeah, so, so it'll gone. be if it sounds if it's if if the sound is da, then the second time you play it it'll go da, and the third time you play it it'll go da, and so on and so forth until it takes a few it takes a little while a few dozen maybe a hundred times through until it's just just a total white noise with little so the way I'm doing the glitching is using what's called a wavetable. So it's basically like the, the, the graph that is used to play the sound is manipulated. So that means that the noises that happen are, sl are still recognizable as part of the sound. So a little piece will be reversed or a little piece will be pitched down or a little piece will be pitched up. But if you keep doing that over and over and over and over and over again, then eventually that just becomes noise and noise and noise and the original sound is lost. So for me, that that's what I mean is this this is kind of like my new dad project, right? Because this is this kind of like for me that that idea was this kind of like a response to constantly taking pictures of things. And I was making sound recordings of my kids and listening to them back and realizing like that moment is gone. You know, that moment where I held the microphone in front of somebody, in this in this case, my kid, and when I heard my, I held the microphone in front of him and he made a sound and giggled and something funny happened and it was wonderful and, like, I felt like I was succeeding and everything. That moment is in the past. It's gone and he's moved on and, there's an, and it's not coming back. You know, and that's just, like, that can obviously be applied to any moment in your life, but it's, it's, it's what's interesting what happens when you have a little a piece of media that represents that moment. And it's like, what if I didn't have that sound recording? It wouldn't matter to me that it was gone, <laughs> you know? But it's this weird thing where like, when you have the sound recording and you know that by listening to it, you're gonna destroy it. It's like really weirdly emotional to play with. And so, and so it becomes this thing of like, why do we need to capture? Why do we need to have that little piece of audio? And why are we so, worried about having copies of it why do we have these hard drives full of photos and video and audio things that we will probably never even look at again but if those hard drives were destroyed we'd be devastated well it's like at the end of the day it's like our memory as you exactly so we're, we're yeah. like outsourcing our memory to yeah. these like devices and this media recordings and this ideas that like oh that's it's fine because it's still there. So I can I could look at it if I need to. And in a way I feel like what our brains are doing is like pretending like that moment hasn't passed. You know that it's like that we can go back to it. It's okay. 
But meanwhile, everything's moving on. Everyone's growing up and things are changing. And it's like, we can't go back to it. And so that, that's like a thing that I was kind of like, oh, I need to play with this as an idea. So that was the instrument I've come up with as my kind of response to that. <laughs> it's pretty intense. I'm just blown away. Yeah. You're just mad, man. I just <laughs> you are completely gone. Well, so then my like, it, it, what's interesting, tying it back to like what what a release is, yeah. what a music release is nowadays. One of the things I'm thinking about doing for that, it wouldn't wouldn't it be interesting to try to sell that object? I think. So. I mean, like, if I were you, I would make that object like incredibly expensive. Yeah. Right, made it. I don't. I don't know. Like very expensive metals or whatever. Just so yeah. it's, it's such a precious thing because yeah. every time you press the button, you lose the noise yeah, 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 exactly. until the noise becomes white noise. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that's such a profound idea. Yeah. And it's it's that's it. So you have this button, and you buy this thing, very expensive thing. You probably need a, a sort of some kind of like counter so that people knows that somebody pressed that button, right? Yeah. So it becomes even more precious. Because so, it's like, so damn. The, the price goes up every time somebody presses it. But imagine well, so, like if somebody really puts like... Well, it's interesting because I, I think like there's, there's two ways of doing it. There's, because the object as it is, as the one that I'm planning on making and the sound that I'm planning on putting into it, will be incredibly personal to me and probably not be as valuable to somebody else. However, my thinking is if I were to make something to sell, that thing to sell, what's interesting about it is that the like I said before, it only emotionally functions if the sound that's in that box is the only copy of the sound in the world. Because if you have a copy of it on your laptop, it doesn't matter. You have, you'll, you'll just press it, it doesn't, it's just a funny thing. But like, so in a way, what's interesting about selling this object is that to sell it, I'd have to make the object, and if somebody wants to buy it, I would have to load a sound on there that's important to that person and ensure that that's the only copy. So the whole art piece means that you have to go to this people's house, yeah. to the person who wants to buy this piece, yeah. and you have to be there and record yeah. one thing that is important to them. Yeah. And then... And it has to be only you having it, so you right. have to be there to record otherwise. Exactly, well, so that's, I think that's, I've been trying to work out what the best approach is. I, that's one of my, that's one of my things. Because then like so. it's expensive, but what you're getting is the most bespoke yeah. piece of art you can exactly. think of. So my thinking is, I show up, potentially maybe I could license somebody else to do this, or like, I don't know, but anyway, the ideal would be for me to show up with my handheld sound recorder that isn't connected to the internet. It's a, it's a, it's a non-smart device, it's a handheld sound recorder. I can plug microphones into it, sit it down, record whatever sound they want to have on the box onto that SD card, transfer directly with, on, with no internet, nothing, uh, between that SD card and the SD card inside the box, um, which puts it onto the local memory, destroy the SD card that was in the sound recorder because there will still be the ghost of that sound on the SD card. So that needs to be, like, even if I delete it, right, it would have to be completely, the only way to guarantee it is if I literally blow it up. Yeah, or microwave it. Or, or microwave it or something, yeah. And document the destruction of that SD card and then create some kind of, cert I think part of the design of the instrument will be uh, the creation of a certificate that, like a, that certifies that that's the only sound, copy of the sound in that box. Then you're good to go. One of the best modern piece of modern art. I can think of. 
I'm serious because like it's such a, Thank you. a bespoke like audio piece. Yeah. You know, there's nothing like it. And it's that button. And imagine like, okay, so you, your process is beautiful because you have to go there, you have to meet the people, you'll have the conversation, then you, you destroy the SD card and that's you done. Yeah. So that's your piece. Yeah. Enjoy it. Exactly. And then there is that button yeah. in their house. Yep. It's up to them. And every time anyone touches the button, the noise starts yeah. getting lost. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's insane. Like, it, I don't know, it's such a, it's such a big... Um, I'm blown away. Sorry, I can't. I can't really explain. Um, I like the idea. I like I'm pleased the idea. you like it. I mean, it ties into it. There, there is a long history of of kind of auto destructive uh, video and sound stuff, and it's it, it's certainly referencing that stuff. And I, I I think it's a really interesting genre of of work. And so I, I'm I didn't with it. I yeah. didn't know that this was a thing. Like I'm so it's I'm so cool. The, the, the most famous musically, the most famous one is a is a piece called Disintegration Loops, which is a kind of a musical thing, which uh, by uh, what's the guy's name. It's, he's got a. Anyway, disintegration loops, uh, where he kind of takes the tapes and kind of repeated and repeated and repeated until they kind of basically fell apart. And so it's a really beautiful. But there's pieces. no button there. No, I mean, so that's it. I think the kind of the live sort of engagement of you killing the thing yeah. is is part of, and killing your own thing as well I think that's what makes it powerful and it has to look beautiful I mean it has to look like yeah, this, so this the design piece should of be design you know maybe you should collaborate with, with, a, with like a big I will be yeah so I mean, they, it's a it's a collaboration with um, with Tommy Perman do you know Tommy Perman um, so he's he's a fantastic designer and and has built a bunch of objects oh. musical objects and maybe stuff. you should collaborate with different ones for each one yeah oh maybe so like if I call you and I say oh look I really like a piece made of marble then yeah. you can go around and look for a, a marble uh, sculpture. Oh, yeah. And he can make like a marble box for you. Well, that's, oh man, a marble one? That'd be amazing. I w so he's done, he's done some work, Tommy's done some work recently with making um, sound things out of Corian. Do you know Corian? No. It's like fake marble. It's like oh, right. human processed marble. It's really oh, interesting. like quartz, yeah, okay. Sort of, but like, yeah, it's like a, it's like a, a, a faux material version. It's really interesting. Um, so that's really cool, and I just did a, I just collaborated on a tiny project with a design agency in Dundee, making a little instrument for them, and that they they made the case out of poured concrete. It was yeah, really that's cool. It. That's what I'm talking about. It was about. really nice, and I, I had never thought of it before. But it's like a beautiful thing because it's really heavy, and it's like, it's like, wow, it's interesting to make a musical interface that's like and stupidly fits, heavy. Like imagine somebody had that kind of design at home, you know, like concrete floors and whatever. That would fit beautifully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, I think there's certainly a brutalist kind of oh, thing in man. there. I love. So I, I definitely the concrete thing. I was like, man, I need to make more of those. So I, I'll probably be revisiting the concrete thing. I'm so excited about this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, dude, we gotta call it a day. Yeah, man. thank you so we, much. We reached really, uh, yeah. we reached our, our quota here. I'm um, sure. Yeah, that's a long a long podcast. Uh, but the thing is, like, we didn't even scratch the surface here. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> As I say, we need to have a second episode where the origin story is out of the way, so we can focus right. on the meat. And then we know? can just like throw ideas around for an hour damn that would be amazing yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm so blown away by the idea um, so thank you very much Jan for taking part of the podcast I hope you enjoyed it thanks for having me Eric. so if people wants to speak to you where can they find you uh, I, most of my social media is my name Jan Sesnek okay, uh, so Y-A-N-N-S-E-Z-N-E-C on Twitter on Instagram on my website everywhere uh, just that's, Google you. That's the spot. Yeah, there are, there are a few Jan Sesnex in the world, but I, think are, yeah. I, I seem to be the one with the most 
at least anglophone internet presence. So uh, yeah, you'll find me pretty quick. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, Jan, thank you very much. Thanks a bunch. And uh, thank you for listening. Uh, that's it. Bye.